And this is Adapting, the future of Jewish education, powered by the Jewish Education Project and Jewish Live. I'm David Breifman. Hi, everybody, and welcome to what is now our eighth episode of Adapting, the future of Jewish education. And today's livecast is brought to you in conjunction with our friends at Jewish Live. I'm David Breifman, the CEO at the Jewish Education Project, and we are glad to be able to bring to you today's special episode dealing with Israel education. At the Jewish Education Project, we pride ourselves on inspiring and empowering educators to bring the very best of Jewish education to all of those participants in various settings across the country and, in fact, the world. Today's conversation was scheduled to be on this particular date, and we'll talk about why we chose July 1 as our particular date for this episode, recognizing that for some of you, it is also the beginning of summer, and for others of you, it is in the midst of a longer-term pandemic that we all find ourselves in. Um, Each week, we look at different topics, but today's is special for all of us in many ways. A few technical notes before we really get started. For those of you who are joining us on Zoom, you can introduce yourselves in the chat function. We'd like to know who you are and where you're calling in from. And if you have a question to ask one of our panelists, feel free to do so in the Q&A box and I'll be able to forward that and ask them that question. Last thing, all of our live casts are available on our website and we attach them with resources for all of you to have a look at, which directly corresponds to the discussion that we are talking about. So today, we weren't going to have an episode today. We thought summer's starting, you know, give ourselves a break. And then we looked at the calendar and we saw July 1. And on July 1st, 2020, there was this date on the political landscape of Israel where, depending on what you call it, one of two things was going to happen. Either the annexation of parts of the West Bank or or the declaration of sovereignty over parts of Judea and Samaria. Well, as we'll see, there might have been a third possible scenario, that being that actually very little happened today, and we'll talk about what that means. However, today is not a discussion about politics. There are plenty of webinars, plenty of articles you can read about the political situation and the difference between everything that's taking place in Israel today. We're using today's opportunity to talk specifically about Israel education and what we have called the conflict, the complexity, and the connections related to Israel education. So I'm not even going to get into politics with our speakers today. That is going to be a background for much of our discussion, but really we're going to be talking about the issues, the greater issues surrounding this enterprise of Israel education. So I am pleased to be joined today by three um, colleagues, friends, um, and teachers um, in this sector of Israel education. First of all, I am introducing Dr. Rachel Fish, who is a historian and educator of Zionist thought and Israeli history and society. And she is passionate about dealing with these issues of complexity, as we will soon see. Next will be Robbie Greengrass, who is a British-born Israeli living in the Galil region in Israel, who's worked in education, performance and writing for many years now. And while the creative director of Makom, the Israel Education Lab of the Jewish Agency, He coined the phrase hugging and wrestling with Israel, which we will be sure to explore in a few moments as well. And Anne Lansky is the founding CEO of the iCenter, which is dedicated to supporting the field of Israel education in North America. And Israel and education have always been part of her personal and professional passion. So when we're beginning to have this conversation today, I really want to start by trying to get some of our definitions up front and really front and center of today's discussion. So I want to invite Anne to come in, first of all, to try and talk to us a bit about what she sees as the goals and purpose of Israel education today, and how does she define the area of conversation that we'll be exploring as we move on. So welcome, Anne. Thank you, David, for inviting me into the conversation. Hi, Robbie and Rachel and everyone who's joining us. The purpose of Israel education I think the purpose of Israel education, like all Jewish education, ultimately is about enriching the life and the meaningfulness of our students, both as Jews and as human beings, to be a blessing to themselves and to the world. I think that we need to understand good Israel education as good Jewish education ultimately is good education. 
um, good education or excellent education is learner-centered. Um, the starting point is always the learner. And sometimes we need to remember when we are walking into a, a place that we're, we're not there to teach curriculum, we're there to teach students curriculum. Um, relationship building with Israel and Israelis is key. And um, the goal, I would say, of Israel education is, is the development of a mature relationship with Israel um, through an education that is relevant, resonant, complicated, layered, and inspiring. Um, and lastly, I'll just say that this kind of um, layered and sophisticated or nuanced education is best engaged in when there's a foundation and a context um, for it. And that's why I see it connected to Jewish education because that's where the foundation I would hope is provided. And that's why we support the infusion and curricularization of Israel into all places where Jewish learning and experiences are happening, be it at home, school, camp, really anywhere. Um, so that Jewish education and these experiences along the, throughout their lives, um, beginning in early childhood, have provided the foundation. Great, thanks. So we'll be exploring that. I'm really glad you laid the foundations from the very beginning that we're talking about the multiplicity of settings where Israel education can take place. But it's interesting that you point out that we're taking the starting point, the learner and where the learner is at. I'm going to get Rachel to chime in, um, especially from her vantage point as, as an academic in the, in the area and make the distinction for us now, Rachel, between Israel studies as an enterprise and Israel education and what you think the role there, the intersection of the two is as well. Sure. Thank you. Thank you, David. And nice to see you, Anne and Robbie, and the Jewish Education Project for hosting. Uh, I think the distinction, that, as I would label it, in terms of what Israel Studies is, is that Israel Studies comes out of the spirit of Wissenschaftes Judentums, right? The scientific study of Judaism. And it's this idea that emerges in 19th century Germany that you can look at Jewish studies as you look at other academic subjects with quote unquote detached objectivity as as much as humanly possible as one has when they engage in the pursuit of exploring knowledge for academic purposes. It's not about how you believe. It's not about what you believe. It's not about how it makes you feel. So in some ways, it's actually everything that Anne said in the opposite, right? It's this idea that it's not about studying at a yeshiva, but let's actually look at potentially the multiple authors of the Hebrew Bible as an example. So Israel studies comes out of that tradition. And so if you look at Israel studies, the way it exists both in North America and, you know, throughout Europe and in Israel, you are going to see a multiplicity of perspectives and in interdisciplinary study from anthropology, history, sociology, conflict studies, whatever it may be, um, coming to the subject matter with the lenses of those discipline methodologies applied. But it's not about how it makes you feel. It's not about your connection to this place, although many have a deep connection, deep engagement, and come from a place of wanting to be engaged with it for multiple purposes. But it really is to be uh, under the microscope in a scientific type of manner. So it does differ in that way, David. Great. So just pick up then, because I think you're, you're then making the distinction, which is great for all of us between Israel studies and Israel education. But can you add on a layer onto Anne's answer as well? What role does knowledge have or what role does content have in the development of this connection or this identity building thing that we're talking about when we talk about Israel education? Absolutely. And I want to be very clear when I answer this question that I'm speaking for myself as someone who's in the field of Israel studies and as someone who, who sees um, herself as an Israel educator, but I'm not speaking for the field of Israel studies writ large or academics writ large. Um, for me, it, it's very important to actually have knowledge about the subject matter so that you can understand the context and which issues are emerging. You need some historical scaffolding because if you remove it from that particular context, then it's void of a lot of the nuance and complexity that is needed. And you can't just bring the particular lens that you have as a learner, whether it's, you know, your American experience, your, you know, your identity experience as a woman, whatever it may be. Um, you actually have to situate the knowledge within a particular 
particular place with a particular people in order to make sense of what is happening, occurring, um, and what um, we are studying. And the last thing I will say is that I feel very strongly that we need to be literate about Israel with all of its nuances. And I say this um, knowing that many students I have worked with at all different levels, not just in the university, don't have geographic literacy. They don't understand uh, where Tel Aviv is compared to where Jerusalem is. Um, they think the West Bank is near Gaza because it's on the left side of the page, right? So, so we need to have some literacy here. Um, and the last thing I'll say is that as important as it is, and I look forward to discussing this with Ann and Robbie about how one feels and the meaning making that students need to do in order to engage with the subject matter so that it's relevant to them. Um, they also need to be able to understand uh, facts and narratives and put these co in conversation with one another because it's just not about how it makes them feel. That's not sufficient in my mind in order to discuss these issues at a very high level. Okay. I'm itching to get Robbie's, Robbie's put input here. So, Robbie, how do you respond to both? And it's not to put you against each other because I think we're all working in the same enterprise, but what would you layer on here, Robbie, to what Anne and Rachel have said? Uh, I guess I'd actually, uh, I'd, I'd combine the two, to be honest. I actually have a feeling that, or, or the way that I approach Israel education uh, is that it's um, both uh, an academic learning and it's also identity development. Um, so I would actually probably, I, I, I enjoy um, uh, uh, Lord Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs talked about the word ladat, the Hebrew words to know. When you take it in its biblical sense, Ladat, so Adam knew Eve, and from there came a baby. So Ladat, in a Jewish sense, is also knowledge and is also intimacy. Um, and I think that that's where these two would blend, is that, and, and being aware that, so for me, the, the aim of Israel education is to bring the learner into an intimate relationship with Israel, which, as we know in all intimate relationships that we have with those that we love, that means that I get to know what I love about you, and I get to know what bugs me about you, and I get to know what you like, and I get to know what I like about you, and, and so on. So intimacy, I think, would be the way to go, like that. Um, and one other thing that I would add, I guess, is um, I think especially nowadays, I think that Israel education needs to include um, what I would call the fascination of difference and not just the comfort of similarity. Um, that Israel's really different and Israelis are really different. And that's something we have to learn to work with. I think we need it in life anyway, in particular, ideological difference, not just uh, ethnic difference. Great. So we'll come back and we'll explore that more further. And I really want to just delve one step deeper into these conversations about the purpose of Israel education being to love or intimacy or to care, or to develop connection, or to develop relationship. They all mean very different things. Um, and I, I like, can you make somebody love something? Can you make somebody be more proud of something? It's really interesting when we talk about Israel education, the desire of Israel education is to make people feel more what towards this, um, towards this entity. Um, so Anne, can you come in on the conversation of love versus caring versus connection, or how you see them all playing with one another? Yes. <clears throat> um, I'm thinking about what happens when um, like a student or, or when, when we begin to tell parts of our story as part of the story of Israel and the Jewish people. It doesn't mean the story is always simple. It's not always loving. It's not always happy, but it's a story and we're connected to the story. Um, and that's for me, connection isn't, you know, I want to be clear, I completely agree with Rachel. Rich content goes without saying. Where I think that we get into trouble is sometimes we miss the first step, which is it's not only in the sphere of Jewish education, it can't only be um, an academic discipline because if we miss that foundational step, we see what happens. Um, but connection is connection to the people, to the place, to the history. It's part of it's part of who we to understand it in a way is part of who we are, where we come from, and perhaps where our destiny is. Um, so it's it is emotional, it is intellectual, it is, and it is not always 
happy and loving. Um, like Robbie said, it's, it's the totality. So I'm a bit, um, not confused, but I want to try and go here a bit step, one step further. Like it's clear that somebody can be Jewish and have a Jewish identity without Israel being part of that identity, that, that person's identity. Um, there are examples of it. We can talk about those people. Um, but as people engage in the sector of Israel education, we're saying, okay, those people might exist, but our role is actually to try and what, make the case that Israel should be incorporated in someone's identity, or um, is it to, to try and show that Israel does have what to offer? Like, how do we see Israel fitting into the overall identity? And are we being prescriptive here? Are we pushing forward a, a certain, not a, maybe an agenda, um, but a certain uh, position in the sand that we think to be a Jew in the 21st century, Israel needs to be considered central to one's identity today? Or are we saying something a bit more, a bit different to that? Um, Rachel, you want to come in here? Yeah, I think, it, I think it's a very good question, David. And I, I, I find myself leaning a little bit, Robbie, towards Macomb on this when we talk about Jewish students. Um, you know, I, I think the, the, it's a different conversation for non-Jews, I will say. And, and that's also different for Israel studies because they don't all come with a connection. I, I just want to tell you, sometimes it's just fills an hour to get a credit. So <laughs> you have to be realistic here as well. Um, in terms of this conversation, I would say it's really, uh, for me, Israel is a laboratory of the Jewish people. It's not the only laboratory, but it is a laboratory and a very serious laboratory. And that's why I say Makom Robbie fits part of this equation for me in the work that you've done with 4HQ and, and hugging and wrestling. I would also say I, I would push back a little bit, David, on the student who tells me Israel has nothing to do with me or I have nothing to do with Israel. Because I think if I did a little bit of archaeological digging, I would actually be able to help them understand, ah, you know why you face this way when you pray, when you do pray? Or wait a minute, you know why you actually say this at the Passover Seder and why this story is in this meta narrative and the real and the imagined and all of these kinds of things. So, so I would push them very gently, but not because I expect them to have a political position and not because I expect them to also delve necessarily into all of the complexities that we may, you know, live for and really engage with. But because I think that as Anne started, the Israel piece is very much part of the larger Jewish conversation. And also peoplehood and the collective Jewish experience is part of this Israel conversation. So that that is a piece for me that I would I would want to um nudge them on a little bit. And I would just say one last thing, which is I do think of someone like um, Professor Michael Walzer, who is, you know, Princeton Professor Emeritus and a political philosopher. And he talks about how the, the prophets are connected critics. And he talks about the prophets being connected critics. And I would want that student to read that essay about being a connected critic so that they could start to see themselves, not because they're necessarily even critical, but they could start to see why there are certain models within our tradition that go beyond just their own sense of either self or their own sense of universalism and actually are deeply rooted in a particularism. Right. Robbie, come in here on this one. Yeah, I'm, I'm with Anne. When, when we talk about, I, I, I'm a big fan of... Uh, when we try and define what we mean by identity, we're talking about the story that I understand, that I live and tell about myself. Um, and I think that when you're coming into Jewish education, when Israel education is part of Jewish education, as opposed to in academia, I think we are coming in with an assumption that a connection to Israel, Israel here and now, uh, is part, needs to be part of one's, Israel, one's Jewish identity. Um, with the nature that, the nature of that connection, whether it's a large part or it's a small part, but I think we, we, I think we all do assume that that's where it is. Uh, and the challenge is um, to, uh, because on the one hand, we want this to be an inspiring part of our learners' identity. And at the same time, we want it connected to a real place that actually exists, which may, which may not always be inspiring. Um, but no, that's... I, 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 um, I think it's an assumption, just like it's an assumption that we'll, we're, we're going to teach you a bit of Bible. If, you, if we're doing Jewish education, that's a bit which is 
part of it and you have to deal with it like it or not it's part of what it is to be jewish and i think those doing israel education are making that assumption and yeah just a quick comment i think language matters um, and I think we run into trouble when we refer to Israel as central to Jewish education as opposed to integral. Describe the difference for us a bit. Pardon? Describe that difference for us. Yeah. Central means central. Integral means um, woven in and not a, a component of. Doesn't it, It's not the center of. I mean, it could be. But I think that's when we, at least when I see pushback, is because, what do you mean it's not central? It, it, but integral is something that I think is more realistic. Um, and then I also, well, that's, that's what I'll say for now. Okay. But I, I hear all of you, but I also want to ask, do you think this has become more difficult over time? Um, as the Jewish people, at least defined by some sociology, have become, especially the younger generations, have become more universalist in their outlook on the world. Um, and they see themselves more as global citizens, large numbers of them. I have a specific question here is also already asked about ethno-nationalism. But do you think our task of including Israel as integral is becoming increasingly difficult? Do you believe the argument that young Jews today are becoming more distant from Israel as being, as being integral to who they are as human beings and as Jews? Um, or... Um, or not. I'm just interested to hear your reflections because um, you've all been involved in this field for, for several years, so you've seen a change or not over time. So I'm interested to hear any perceptions of that. So, um, Robbie, come in on this one. Changes over time. Yeah, totally. I, I, I've noticed a difference. Um, and I would say it starts that there are, there's the aspect of Israel, um, Israel becoming more complicated for people to make uh, connections according to their own progressive liberal values. That's one aspect of it. But underlying that, I would suggest, is, or what I've been noticing, is that the more you move into universalism, uh, the less Jewish identity is defined as also being part of an extended family. When being Jewish is primarily defined according to what values I associate with, and really when I mean values, I'm actually meaning principles, not questions, but what we should stand on, what's right and what's wrong. Then the moment that you do that, if somebody is not according to those same values, then they're kind of, they're, they're, they're very difficult to understand as being part of my Jewish people. If my Jewish peoplehood is only understood by values. Um, and Jewish peoplehood and a connection with Israel needs also that understanding that I am part of that being Jewish is not just my, my own personal um, direction to nirvana and to social justice, but it is also a connection to a people. And that's a really tough one. It's a tough one to hold on to in the United States in particular these days, because it smacks of tribalism and tribalism is seen as a bad thing. And it smacks of racism. Um, and that's also a pretty bad thing. Um, and, there's, and our work is cut out for us because the discourse, the general American discourse, forget the Jewish discourse, but the general American discourse is not ready for combining basically what Hillel first said, that I, um, if I'm not for myself, the idea of being for myself and being for others, that we live that tension, I think that in Western culture altogether, we kind of lost that and it's one or the other. I look after us or I look after all. And, and they're in, con in constant uh, tension with each other. They're in a fight with each other. And that makes it real difficult. Okay. So I'm going to bring Rachel into this generational question as well. But I do want to layer on to this because it's disingenuous, I guess, in some ways, not to at least mention, and there's a question already there, that it's not just the change in generations that are occurring, but there has been a movement of perhaps a divide between the core values between the majority of um, of Jews in North America specifically, and at least where the, the political decisions or the political leanings of the Israeli government for the last two decades um, have been going. So you have to at least talk about this. The question that I have in the, in the box says, it seems troubling to mention the change in the younger generation's attitude as a move toward universalism without talking about the rightward shift in Israeli policy, both religiously and militarily. And I guess it's fair to say that for the, for the entire lifetime of a young person today entering college, they have only known one particular type of government 
uh, and government policy in Israel, um, except for a, a two-year gap. But So they only know one type of um, political leaning. So, Rachel, let's now lay the generational shift with the reality on the ground, and we'll use that into a launch pad into talking about the particulars of po politics and education shortly after. Yeah, uh, these are all very good questions and points, and, and I agree with much of what Ann and Robbie are saying. I, in a very nerdy way, I truly was rereading um, Hesse's Roman Jerusalem last night, and he talks specifically, you know, about particularism and universalism. He's talking about the Jewish national character being the roots of particularism and then the universalist blooms of these flowers. And when we only are grabbing the flowers and decorating our necks with these flowers and forgetting from where these flowers come, we actually need to hit the pause button. And so, so I do think that these are two sides of the same coin, particularism and universalism. And I want to emphasize a point that Robbie made, and it, and it matters to the point that you're making, David, which is particularism has a very negative connotation in the 21st century, especially for young Jews. It is parochial, it is narrow, it is jingoistic. Um, and I firmly believe it needs to be reclaimed because every other group you could imagine is allowed to be particular. Every other group. And what doesn't matter if it's about race, it doesn't matter if it's about ethnicity, gender, sexuality, particularism is not a negative for them. So, so there is something happening here that I think doesn't have to do at all with Israeli politics, but I'm going to add that in a second, and has to do with a major cultural shift and zeitgeist that we are seeing um, that's taking place especially on college campuses, but absolutely not only on college campuses. And for sure, the younger generations are feeling the pressure of that zeitgeist. Now then, David, you add the layer, exactly as you're saying, in which this same generation has only seen a time in which there has never been a discussion of meaningful peace. Oslo is not in their mind. They do not even remember, you know, anything historically about antifadas. They're, I mean, it's nothing. And it's been a rightward shift, whether it's religion, whether it's uh, sec security. And as we know, Israelis, Robbie, are voting more right. And American Jews are voting more left. And these are major differences, major differences. And so it absolutely, David, exacerbates, I would say, that shift both generationally, also politically, and at the same time, I do feel that um, irrespective of what Israeli government is in place at the moment, this issue of a seduction or hijacking of universalism to the nth degree, because of course we want universalism at the same time, as, as Robbie alluded, we need both of these things. But when you are only focused on that, it will absolutely have ramifications for young Jews thinking about their connection and engagement with and education around Zionism and Israel and the Jewish collective. Well, this is, um, this is now getting into the real meat of today's topic and why we're going on this, on this particular day. And can you, um, how do you incorporate all of these complexities and all of these um, divides within Israel education? Um, so um, I'm assuming no one here is going to say we ignore them, but how do you do so in a way that really builds towards what you're saying? Um, yeah, your approach to this. I just want to start with one slight additional piece of context to the previous question, which is that. Um, this generation, these last 120 years, um, there's more Israel study, like the concept, the reality of Israel studies on campus over the last 20 to 30 years, it didn't exist the way it does today. Um, birthright Israel, the fact that almost one out of every two young Jewish people will have known an experience in Israel, um, it's, it didn't happen 25 years ago. Um, hopefully teen travel soon will be the same thing. So that, um, and then there's social media and, and other things like that, but just that there are additional things in the, in the uh, landscape that are changing. Um, okay, on to the question, how do we do Israel education? Could you ask again, I'm sorry. How do you bring all of these complexities and, and knowing this is the background, how do you bring that sort of complexity into the discussion of Israel education? at the risk that it might for some be divisive, but I'm assuming none of us here are uh, uh, promoting a divisiveness here. We're trying to bring things together. So how do you embrace both the complexity and also this mission of, of identity building we're talking about as well? 
No, it's a really important question. Um, there are, first of all, we, we must embrace it because Jewish education and Israel education can't be the only sphere in which education isn't sophisticated and nuanced because everywhere else it is in the world. So they, they are sometimes even, they meaning learners are sometimes I think even more prepared for that. But one of the things that we focus on, there is the focus of content and why you choose certain content and what is timely and what is timeless and how we take timely events, perhaps like today could have supposedly was going to be, um, and um, frame them in, in, in values and ideas that are timeless, right? So that there isn't a lot that happens. To quote someone in my house, if all we do constantly is react to things, we're putting out fires instead of really developing identities and we're not a fire department as a field. Um, that was what I was quoted. But I think that we think also about a toolkit. What are the tools um, skills and understandings that our learners need to be better learners, right? How do we understand, analyze, and read maps and narratives? What, is, what role does context play? Why are questions um, more important, perhaps, even than obviously exclamation points? It's the toolkit around um, how we become even more savvy learners with regard to Israel, but the world around us. I guess that was part of my reluctance of to doing today's broadcast, just to be open with all of you. Like doing a Dafka on today was seem like, oh, we're reacting to the, the media and what's happening in the political um, arena around us. And I think your point here that for Israel education to be effective, it needs to be woven into one's overall trajectory, one's overall Jewish education and, and education in general is really critically important. Um, Robbie, um, You've made many contributions to this field. Um, I think one of the greatest um, is your framing of the, the term hugging and wrestling. And for those listeners who aren't familiar with this, can you give us a bit of a, um, an expose of hugging and wrestling, what it's all about, um, and why you think, and I have a feeling you think this, um, it might need some adjustments or some, some updates from when you first coined it because it's gone through so many iterations, at least in our discussions over the years as well. So talk to us a bit about hugging and wrestling. Sure. Um, yeah, hugging and wrestling was an article that I wrote some 16 years ago. Um, and at the time it was, I suppose it was trying to say um, that critique can also be an expression of commitment. That was what it was about. And I would say there are three problems with the phrase right now. First of all, hugging and wrestling became a slogan. And slogans are not useful in education, or certainly not education that's actually trying to get deeper. Um, secondly, um, uh, this was something that Johnny Ariel, my friend and, and, and co-worker for a good long while, used to say that of the three words, hugging and wrestling, the most important word is the word and. Um, and what I've noticed over the last decade is that um, people have mostly been replacing the word and with either. So we either hug or we wrestle. And I think that that's definitely problematic. And it's pretty much the opposite of, of the intent. Um, and also, I would say that um, I, I, most of my work now is, is training educators and or, and or working with young adults. Um, so these are people who are either parents themselves or about to be parents um, and these are young adults and it feels to me when I have conversations with people that hugging and wrestling no longer hits the correct emotional register because hugging and wrestling doesn't leave doesn't express where a lot of people are at which is um, furious raging disappointment um, the research of uh, Alex Pompson, he talked about how, you know, we can define people according to whether they're devoted, disengaged or disillusioned. But I'm meeting more and more young adults and older adults who are both engaged and disillusioned. Um, and I think that that's, and that's one of the key problems with this hugging and resting, which is why I've sort of, I've moved on from that because I also realized that um, it was a nice idea, but it needed a practical, how do you do it? Uh, and that was why I, that was one of the reasons why I wrote this article about, about the annexation. I'm allowed to talk about it yet, or do you want it to come up later? 
Um, what you call annexation, some people call sovereignty, but go for it. Look, I think that there are, <laughs> to me, there are four cornerstones of what Israel is and the Israel that we teach about. Um, call it content areas or call it values. The four cornerstones are security, keeping Israel secure. There are Jewish peoplehood, Israel's connection to the Jewish people and being Jewish in all sorts of fashions. Our connection with the land and the fact that Israel is a thriving and fragile liberal democracy. Um, and my concern is, and it remains, you know, the fact that it didn't happen today, this is Israel. We, you know, timing is not of most in, the most important thing in Israel. You know, it'll ha it could happen tomorrow, it could happen next month, and it could not happen at all. But the fact is that what was on the table and continues to be on the table is the idea that of these four, the ideal of liberal democracy may well no longer be on the table. And for educators, and, I, and I'm now not, not giving my political opinion, although you may hear it behind my words, as educators, it, if we are looking at something with four corners and suddenly it only has three, it's like the geometry teacher, right, who is teaching kids how to understand a square, but suddenly it's become a triangle. Um, and, I, and that was what I was trying to point at, that, that Israel is on the cusp of changing fundamentally its own definition of itself. And we as educators, if we're teaching people to connect and be intimate with a particular place, we've got to take on board that this place could well be shifting fundamentally. Um, and that's something which keeps me up at night. So we'll link to that article if you haven't already read what Robbie wrote in E-Jewish Philanthropy. It's a really important piece. Um, and I am interested in this and getting Rachel to, to, to chime in here specifically, because I think if you push Robbie's argument even a bit further, he's saying that, not to put words in his mouth, but at least to get the reaction from Rachel to this, that um, if Israel takes over territory and does not give equal rights to all of the people living within that territory, um, here we can argue over sovereignty and annexation, but I don't want to go there, then at least for the perception of young liberal Americans today, it is counter to the liberal democracy and the social progressive values which they hold dear. And therefore, one possibility is this would be another reason for them to turn their backs on Israel if they see this Jewish homeland doing something that's antithetical to their core values. Whether we see it in that way or not is sort of um, a background to the conversation. The conversation is how do we as Israel educators begin to address this perception of reality of these two populations actually going further apart than actually coming closer together? So, Rachel, there's a lot better to, to contribute in on, but I want to hear your thoughts on, on this confluence of events today or lack of events today. Yeah, I, I mean, I thought, Robbie, your article was excellent. And um, I say that really specifically because when you also read this in the context of what's happening in the American landscape, much of what you're raising isn't oh so different from what we're grappling with as Americans right now. I mean, security, peoplehood is not Jewish collective, but it's the, what is the American peoplehood? Land for so many people, right? Liberal democracy, it sure does feel fragile, right? It absolutely, so, what, what's interesting to me is to want to think about, too, what's unique to the Israel piece and what's, what's not, right? What has, and again, it's that particularism and universalism, because these are very core to thinking about how we as educators really do engage in thinking about teaching of what is aspirational, yet what is realistic, what is happening on the ground. And we all do this all the time, knowing that what is written in so many of the primary sources that we teach have never come to fruition, right? They just haven't. And it doesn't mean then we throw that document out or we throw out the ideas of those individuals who wrote it, but we do have to, David, recalibrate to a certain degree or reorient ourselves to put that in conversation. Um, and the conversation for some has led to that position of real complete disengagement 
For others, it has led, as you're saying, Robbie, and I find much more of what you're saying of frustration and anger, disillusionment, and some kind of hopefulness, but they're not sure what that is or how to relate to it. I also would say a piece that relates to this, and, and it's a larger conversation that's not even specific to Israel again for all of us, is that to do the deep education and not the slogans that we're talking about, that you know, wrestling and hugging should not have become, but it may have, requires our students to be able to hold multiple perspectives and complexity with each other at the same time so that they're not these binaries of good and bad, right and wrong. It's not that simple. It's much more difficult. And part of that goes to this larger piece around critical thinking skills and how we help students gain those critical thinking skills so that they can hold that complexity. And David, it's not answering your question completely, but unfortunately, the younger you get and you see what's happening in many schools, people are teaching for what a test should be and they're teaching people what to think and a social media empowers the what to think and let me curate so you only hear your echo chamber and be in your silo and not teaching how to think, which would lead to that complexity. And so we actually are saying, great, let's take the one of the case studies of Israel as the most challenging case study and use that to teach complexity. And Sivan Zakai, her research shows that really young kids can handle complexity. Your five-year-old, your kindergartner can understand that there are different license plates that exist in the West Bank and in Israel and in parts of you know, Israel, and they can understand that things aren't all the same, yet all of these people have to be taken care of in some fashion. They can actually do that. And so part of the question becomes, how do we keep them asking those questions and being engaged so that by the time they're 13, 14, 20, 35, whatever, they haven't just thrown everything out and are still totally in this because they care about these questions. And I'd, I'd love you to come in on this conversation because um, this is so much of what we, we know about our young people today. And we also know that if all we ever talk about are issues of conflict and, and dissonance and disagreement, then that's not an enticing subject matter material. And Israel education is so much more than just that. So I'd love you to, to come in on this whole conversation and specifically on the point of how do you give an Israel education to people that includes all of these things, but is not just about all of these things? That's a good question. Um, I would first completely agree with what's been said, especially all the what all of Rachel's comments of just. I think that. Um, <clears throat> There's a level of um, authenticity and that comes with, I wanna say, relationship building with Israelis, between Israelis and North Americans, between young people. And those kind of conversations, I'm not sure they're so afraid to go to certain places because there's some authenticity there, there's some connection there. And I think that we, there's no question that we need to, I mean, this is sophisticated education, but the questions are, um, how do we provide toolkits for or, or approaches for critical thinking is for sure, but also how do we provide avenues? Um, you know, there in this, there, Israel gives us different ways to think about or understand how we can be Jewish in the world even um, that we don't have here. And there are relationships. And um, I don't think we think often enough about how we bring together Israeli and American educators, peers, whatever it is, but those relationships um, transcend issues. They actually help um, make them more immediate or more authentic um, to engage in. And, and I'll say one last thing. Um, when we are always engaging with Israel, um, we are engaging with the issues of Israel, we are, how are we dealing with Israel or the issue of Israel? Um, and when we are also in relationship with um, Israelis or with learning, that's when um, I think the education happens. Okay. Um, question without notice, but I did ask it on a, on a Facebook forum the other day on, on, in the JEDLAB group, which I'm fascinated just to hear your one word responses to this. Um, well, it's longer than that. 
Um, I think all of us have been exposed to the works of Parker Palmer before, who talks about the authenticity, and you have used this word a lot, and about the integrity of, Jew- of educators bringing their full self to the discussion. Um, do you disclose your political beliefs? Should Israel educators be talking about their own personal beliefs when they're talking about Israel education? Um, and I'm going to encourage the audience to write in on the chat box, yes or no. If I was more sophisticated, I would have had a poll already there. Do you talk about your political... There's an election coming up in Israel. Do you tell your students who you're going to vote for, if you could, or not? Um, so, Robbie, should your political beliefs influence your Israel education? Oh, that's a different question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Look, um, I'll tell you a couple of things. First of all, I live here, so to an element of my approach is already exposed. You know, um, it would be difficult to say that I want the destruction of the state of Israel. I live here. Um, I don't hide my educational beliefs about the way in which we should teach about Israel. But I'll tell you, um, I, we are in times of radical distrust. Uh, and I find this more and more that the moment one says what one stands for, that automatically closes off the opportunity for learning. The person who agrees with me just assumes that they agree with everything I've got to say, and the person who disagrees with me doesn't want to hear a thing. So I actually think find it really useful practice for me and for the learner to really work hard at not showing my opinion. A, it forces me to present as much as possible of the opinions that I don't necessarily share. And it also, I find it really useful because it gets the learner, learners are very interested to find out what I really believe. And it means that they end up listening harder to what I've got to say to try and pass what my actual opinion is. And I find it a useful trick. Then they, then they defend me on Facebook and I'm screwed. I'm scared I won't get a chance to ask you this question, but I think it picks up on this. Um, Robbie, your use of arts and culture I think speaks a lot to, this, to that response as well. Um, can you talk just briefly about why you use arts and culture, I think, to elicit those sorts of responses from your learners as well? Yeah. Um, look, first of all, it's, it's something that um, Abby Dauber-Stern, the new director of Macron, has been talking about a lot. But these are, um, these are also primary, sor- primary sources. Um, this is the way that Israelis are expressing, Israelis are expressing themselves. Um, the other reasons, I'd say there are quite a few. First of all, that arts in general are bottled experience. It's an experience of Israel which, which can reach beyond being physically here, which is kind of useful these days. Uh, secondly, um, uh, I always try and work with arts that Israelis are familiar with so that you're automatically building common ground with other Israelis. You know, if I know this band and Israeli knows that band, then I've got common ground. It's a, it's, it's a fantastic tool for touching complexity and tough issues because if you're, for example, you're following a, a Dagna Hash song which is talking about something deeply troubling, but you're boogieing while listening to it and you're inspired by the energy with which it's being presented, it's basically, it's, it's, uh, it makes it far more digestible. It means that if I'm, say, watching a movie, a piece of uh, a fictional movie, it might address a particular issue, but our conversation afterwards, we can talk about the movie, and it means that we're all equal experts in what we've just seen. So it means that Jeffrey doesn't roll out the same speech that he always makes, and that Dina always screams at him afterwards, because they're talking about what they've seen rather than what they've come in with their minds. Um, yeah, I could go on forever, but it's, I find it a very useful tool, but you need to find that uh, the, the art needs to be good, like it needs to work artistically. It doesn't, not just educationally good, it needs to be aesthetically good as well. And you need to work to give it, that, give it its space. But that's, that would be on one leg. Great. And um, do you share your social political views with, with learners or what would your advice be to educators on that question? Um, I just want to respond, sorry, to one thing that, that Robbie just said, which I agree with completely. Another thing that arts does um, is that a lot of times, just because we're having an experience um, with Israel doesn't mean we're having an Israeli experience. And I think art opens that lens in a really authentic way. Um, I don't think, no, I don't think that my political opinion is something that I share. But at the same time, I do, I do think it's really interesting to engage in issues around what are the issues that like, okay, we're going into an election. I want to talk about who I'm going to vote for, but let's talk about what are the issues 
that matter to you? What are the issues? And by virtue of sort of what's talked about, kids, I mean, I think students are pretty savvy these days, but um, it's not about my political opinion. It's about the values and the issues that matter. So, no. Okay. And I want to follow up with something Robbie said. I'll get to you in a second, Rachel, on this question. But um, Robbie speaks about culture. He speaks about Israeli culture. And I have a really good question um, here, which I did want to ask you as well, about the role of Hebrew language. Um, what role does Hebrew language play in Israel education? Is it a barrier or is it an entry point into understanding each other? Um, and how do we maximize um, or what are we losing um, as less, less Americans, for example, are, are currently engaged in learning Hebrew language? Yeah, for Anne, yeah. Sorry. Um, look, I'll say two things. I think there's a difference between being bilingual and being bicultural. And being bicultural when one wants to engage with Israel is really important. You don't need a fluency in a language, but you need some language. It was a, a number of years ago, we interviewed 100 kids in two days about their relationship with Israel. And one of the questions was, do you know any Hebrew? And so 90% of them all knew Shema or Hamotzi or, or some such thing. But the 10% who had been to Israel, like just the way their face lit up about their, what, he, what Hebrew word did they all know? Sababa. First of all, it's not a Hebrew word, but it didn't matter because that Hebrew word represented a connection to something like you just saw them light up in a way, in a way that was different. So Hebrew, when used um, to create authentic, to, to create culture, when it's part of the culture, then it is not, it is an entry point. When it's used in other ways, it can be a barrier, but how do you connect with the people in a, everything without the language? I'm not sure. So I think we should think about how we use Hebrew in ways that always um, offer opportunities for entry and connection. Great. Thank you. Rachel, um, political leanings, do you share them with your students or not? I'm in the Robbie camp that I don't share, and it's a great way to keep them listening. And they really try to discern uh, you know, who you are and you don't fit in that box, but you fit maybe in this box and you keep them guessing the whole time and they're actually paying attention. So, and, and for me, I'm very authentic about it in that it is not about who I vote for or what um, individual I would want or what party I stand for. It's that I believe similar to Anne, you need to be able to present the multiplicities of positions and it's not about one individual's choices. And I think, Robbie, you're right. We, everyone is waiting to jump, to say, ah, I knew you were this. And, and I don't need them to say, I knew you were this. I need them to listen and engage in a really thoughtful, meaningful way. I'm sorry to ask you a quick question as follow-up related to something you mentioned before, Rachel, but I'm watching the time. And you did allude to it before, but I do want to ask you the question about um, the relationship between anti-Semitism in the world today and, and anti-Israel, it's a completely different segue, but um, you alluded to it before, um, anti-Israel sentiment, anti-Jewish sentiment in the world today. Um, any obvious intersections you'd like to leave our listeners with or just some points that, to, to have them thinking about? It is a, it is a different uh, road, just to note. Um, I, I would say just in terms of everyone working with younger folks, if you are, to not use the term anti-Semitism because they don't know what the hell it is. Use the term Jew hatred or hatred of Jews. Um, I think it makes a big difference. Their parents may not like it. Their grandparents may not like it, but it's very clear. Um, so that's one thing I would say. And I think, as we all know, because this is a conversation about Israel, and I'm assuming Anne and Robbie agree, anti-Semitism is not criticism of Israeli policy. Anti-Semitism is not whether you like annexation or not. Anti-Semitism is when you are standing very clearly in a line of, you know, hatred, incitement of violence, bigotry, prejudice towards Jews, uh, Judaism. And, um, and Israel does enter that conversation when folks very clearly suggest that only the Jewish state has no right to exist. So, so that's what I would say on that front, unless you push me to say no. more. Um, all right. And as we're wrapping up, Rachel, what's one book or one article you would recommend for anyone interested in Israel education? What's something that should be on their bookshelf? Oh, wow. I didn't anticipate this question. Um, just one. 
Uh, I mean, Arthur Hertzberg, the Zionist idea, even though it should say the Zionist ideas, is my go-to second Tanakh, I guess. Um, I think that's uh, necessary because it goes to the heart of, I think, what Zionisms are and also that idea of aspirations and the idea of Jewish laboratory. So that would be my vote. Okay. And something for people to read. I cannot pick one because I have to say there is the education book, which could be Dewey or Parker Palmer. And then there is the Israel piece, which I think I would say Megillah Atzmaut. The Declaration of Independence. Oh, sorry. The Declar- Israel's Declaration of Independence. Great. Thank you. Robbie, what's on your reading list? I got lots of things on my reading list, but I would say that the really important thing is that people actually do read books. Um, I've been into Nicholas Carr these days, and the idea of practicing our minds to think slowly only comes from reading books, and we need to think slowly about Israel. And we only think slowly about all sorts of stuff. Um, And also, I would say avoid books that tell you it's about everything. Choose a book which hits something specific. Look, this conversation could be a whole symposium. It could be a whole conference. Um, and I know many of you are involved in creating such experiences for people. Um, but I do want to bring us to a bit of a close today and say a few things. And if people want to add into the chat box here, lists of things that they want people to read. Um, I should acknowledge that it's always daunting running these live casts, seeing who's online. And just for me to shout out to so many of my colleagues and my teachers of Israel education who are, who are listening in. Um, so please, I encourage you to write down books and we will compile them and put them all on our website. Um, the three of you have really given us a really interesting overarching view of Israel education. And I think the key point that I wanted to really bring home today is really being able to say that on July 1st, when there was so much anxiety or nervousness in the American Jewish community about what potential annexation or potential sovereignty um, could mean, that we as educators were able to step back and say the actual issues are not the political implications of today, but that our learners come first and providing them an overall context in which they can make sense of this for themselves is far more important in terms of the enterprise that we're all engaged in as Israel educators, or I would say as Jewish educators for whom we believe Israel is integral to everything that we do. So I think that that's an important understanding of today's conversation. Um, I also just want to emphasize that, um, as some of you know, that, um, you know, one of my teachers, I think is online, Barry Hazan, has said that, and repeat, is that the content of Israel education, to some people's surprise, might not actually be Israel, or the key content might not actually be Israel. I might get some pushback from Rachel here um, in terms of the role of content, but we do understand here that the learner is really the central focus of everything that we're doing. And in a series about adapting and adapting in Jewish education, I think that's a through line that we're seeing through all of our conversations, that the radical changes that we're going through, maybe now through COVID but beyond, are going to force us to look at things differently, that our starting point has to be where our educators and our families are for us to have this conversation. I did not ask the question because I didn't want anyone to get into profit mode about what we think Israel education might look like post-corona. What's it going to look like with the summer without Israel travel or without birthright trips or whatever it might be? But I think that is a conversation that's going to be looking into the future is what might change as ironically, the world is getting further apart when we're not able to travel so freely, but also technology is bringing us a lot closer together. Um, And what could that signify for Israel education or even the broader enterprise of Jewish peoplehood? I really want to thank Um, Rachel, Anne and Robbie for sharing of themselves and for sharing in this conversation. Um, All three of them um, are so eloquent and making sure that we can have a a, a concise conversation. I know it's difficult because there's so much to say in so many different areas we could have gone into, but really it's a delight to be able to link up with all of you again and to have this conversation. This will be put up on our website with resources available. Finally, I do need to make my usual thank yous to everybody, to my team behind the scenes, all of whom have done a wonderful job um, helping us get to where we are today. I want to thank UJ Federation of New York, who are our ongoing partners in all of this work, to Dan and Lex at Jewish Live, who have helped us propel our podcast to reaching unknown chartered territories. Who would have thought we're reaching over 100 plus people every single week in this new medium? And we thank all of you. 
And to all of you who have joined us online, we know it's July 1st and summer is amidst, but we thank you for joining us. We are not here next week, um, but we will be back in, on July 15th with a panel of Jewish teenagers representing Gen Z um, so we can stop talking about them and start talking with them and to them in a conversation about what issues really matter in their lives. And we guarantee that will also be a really exciting conversation. So once again, thank you to Robbie, Anne and Rachel. Thanks to everybody for joining us today. See you all in a couple of weeks. Lehi Troy. Right.